Legends of Media Research is a podcast series featuring interviews with the media industry's leading researchers, where we go behind the scenes, sharing stories from their greatest achievements and challenges. Brought to you by Media Science, the leader in media and advertising innovation research. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information about media science. But for now, I'm your host, Media Science CEO, Dr. Dwayne Veron. Welcome to another exciting episode of Legends of Media Research. We've got a great show for you today. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Scott McDonald, who is president of the Advertising Research Foundation, the famous ARF. Now, in his previous life, Scott was our industry's leading researcher in the magazine industry. Over the course of his career, he led research at both Time, Inc. and at Condé Nast, the two leading magazine publishers. So today, we're going to learn a thing or two about research for the magazine industry and its lessons for the larger media industries. And trust me, I think you're going to be surprised by just how relevant a lot of these insights are not only in understanding the past, but also in terms of understanding the future and where we need to go. We can learn a lot from this era. And of course, we'll learn a lot about the ARF itself and about Scott, Scott McDonald. So without further ado, welcome to our show, Scott. Thank you, thank you, Duane. So Scott, a lot of our legends trained in a different field and almost stumbled into their media careers. I mean, you know, with Betsy Frank, you know, she trained in art history. She thought she was going to be a museum curator. Brian Schaefer trained as a cultural anthropologist. And it might surprise the audience to know that you trained as a sociologist. In fact, you were set for a great academic career, you know, having earned your PhD in sociology from Harvard. How did you go from this amazing academic career that was laid out for you to kind of jumping the tracks and landing in the media? Well, there's a part of it that was kind of pure random accident, I would say. But I'd start by saying that I'd gotten hooked on quantitative research before going to graduate school. And actually, one of the reasons that I decided to go get a PhD was that I was pretty interested in just the quotidian problems of how you gather data and accurately reflect it back and summarize it and analyze it. And I got into that really again, through almost an accidental kind of, uh, I needed a job when I graduated from UC Berkeley and I went to the hard posting, you know, billboard down in the basement of some building there where you could look for uh, jobs where they were looking for anyone to uh, help on a project. And I ended up signing on with a little research institute that did work on educational program evaluation. And I was the only person in this relatively small firm that actually liked going out and interviewing people and then trying to distill and summarize that. Part of that was meant I got to drive to every school district in the state of California. So it was all very beautiful sort of road trips in different parts of of California. But it it got me to a point of really liking doing applied research, research that that mattered in the decisions in business or government, uh, doing projects for uh, the California Department of Education, for Bay Area Rapid Transit, things like that. So I was, I was already considering a non-academic track even when I started graduate school. Now, you know, spending five years at Harvard, they obviously do a pretty good job of encouraging people to 
uh, stay in academia, and they give you opportunities to uh, not only do research there, but also to teach. And and Harvard undergrads are fun to teach. I got to say, they're, they're uh, some of them that were in my classes remain good friends to this day. Um, so it was a it was a a, a a difficult kind of fork in the road. I was planning to go out to practice my sort of job pitch skills at a couple of academic departments. And in fact, got a very attractive offer from the University of Arizona, as long as I was willing to go there immediately and start teaching three classes um, a little sooner than I thought I was ready to uh, take that on because I still had work to do on my dissertation. But quite out of the blue, I got a lead on a potential job, a kind of serious quantitative applied research job at Time Magazine in New York. There's a a theory in sociology called the strength of weak ties. It was at that point, I think, kind of a a minority view about how people got jobs that just had to do with social networks. And this was back before we actually had electronic social networks. So people studying networks had to deal with like, you know, the classic work was 19th century English parish records where so-and-so vacated a job and it created opportunities up a chain of command. So people who studied how those networks worked thought that there were, you know, the, what were the weak ties, the not the people you knew really closely, but the next ring or the ring out from that in terms of who they knew. So this was my thesis advisor's wife had gone to high school in Illinois with a guy that was involved in research at Sports Illustrated, part of Time Inc. And when Time Inc. came to the point of being frustrated with their understanding of readers per copy and why Time Magazine, the larger news magazine, had kind of equivalent audience size to Newsweek, a smaller circulation magazine. Newsweek had higher readers per copy in the uh, audience surveys. They found that the usual research folks that they would recruit from mostly from ad agencies didn't really have enough academic background to be able to try and tackle those kinds of questions. And so they decided to reach out and try and bring in some scholarly uh, hires. And that is what resulted in this kind of random note. Are you interested in interviewing for a job at Time Magazine? It really came through (laughs) the weak tie of my thesis advisor's wife's high school acquaintance in Illinois, a classic example of weak ties. But that was kind of the, the fork in the road, go teach an academic sociological you know, position at uh, University of Arizona or move to New York and uh, start focusing on media subjects. And I just couldn't resist the, uh, the opportunity to move to the big city and work in a media context, even though it really wasn't literally what I'd focused on in my graduate, uh, graduate studies. There must have been times through your career, especially during those harder moments where you looked back and wondered, should I have taken that job at the University of Arizona? <laughs> yeah, there, there was some of that. I mean, I, I enjoyed the work at, at Time Inc., although I think about a year and a half into it, I started feeling restless and was considering, again, another academic position and got offered one at, at University of California at Irvine. But at that point, they must have noticed that I was I was feeling a little bit frustrated at Time Magazine, and they offered to sort of move me over to Time Inc., the parent company, and establish the first consumer research department at Time Inc. So that was the same department that some years later, Betsy Frank took over. I think she was working in TV during those years, but when, uh, when she left TV, she came to Time Inc., and was effectively running the same department. Ian Lewis also, uh, I think, was my immediate successor when I 
when I left that, uh, that position. So you came to this fork in the road. You had to make this big life decision. I'm sure it was a very difficult decision at the time. You know, do I go to an academic career? Of course, the other thing the audience may not know is that that first job that you accept in, in academic circles is hugely instrumental to your entire career. So it wasn't just a decision about kind of like what job to have. I mean, that was not just a decision about the, your immediate job. That was a decision that had an impact potentially. I mean, if you were going to end up in academia, you know, it's, it's one of those things that would have deeply impacted your career. Usually you don't get a second chance for a tenure track position, you know, so it's, it, it feels very fateful when, when making that decision. And it's interesting because it, I was so mindful of that, that that became the main point of negotiation with Time Magazine. Uh, You know, as I look back on it, one of the smarter things I did early in, uh, in my career. So I was, I was nervous about abandoning academia altogether. And I kind of liked it. I liked the values of academia. I liked teaching. I could imagine myself doing some teaching on the side while I was working in business. I liked, I liked working with real data. I liked working in, in, in applied settings. So I was, I was happy with that. But in negotiating with Time Magazine about this initial job, I wasn't haggling about the salary that seemed okay. The, the main things I wanted them to put in writing as, my, as part of my job offer letter had to do with them giving me permission to publish, to be a speaker at industry events, to be able to speak at forums like APOR, the uh, PAA, uh, the American Statistical Association. And, you know, soon I was to discover uh, forums like uh, the ARF, uh, the Worldwide Readership Research Symposium, all sorts of other stages in which uh, you have an opportunity to uh, try to lead the profession and put out work that that moves the field forward. And I was very uh, concerned about kind of being cooped up in a corporation where they really didn't let you out for that. So that was that was my main condition, apart from a delayed start date that would allow me to actually finish the first draft of my dissertation before I moved from Cambridge to New York. I wanted a guarantee that I was going to be allowed to participate as a professional in the broader field and not be locked up inside of the high keep of the time and life building. And we're foreshadowing a bit here, Scott, you know, the way that your career would unfold, you ended up being a little bit of a hybrid, kind of like bridge between industry and academia. You, you know, not only were active in those fora that you were talking about and publishing, of course, but you also went on to, to teach in kind of like an adjunct professorial role at, at Columbia. Yeah, and before that, even at NYU, I taught uh, media sociology at NYU for five years and then uh, took a bit of a break and then started to run teaching a course with uh, David Poltrack and for part of the time also with Horst Stipp at Columbia Business School. And that gig went on for nearly 20 years. And I've always found teaching to be very, very useful in helping to consolidate your view of the field, keeping up with the field, because it's a very dynamic field. Media research changes as fast as media do. And so, you know, one year, something like, say, programmatic buying is a concept that that people are talking about. And the next year, it's 50% of the market in digital. I mean, the pace of change is is phenomenally fast. And that has to be reflected in, in teaching. But teaching also 
requires that you not have a lot of presuppositions about what your audience understands. So you have to try to explain from first principles. And I think it, I think it, it always makes people better at their day jobs if they're kind of flexing that, that muscle <laughs> in a classroom as well. And, and what a contribution to the industry as well. So Scott, let's go back. So you joined Time Inc. Now you coming from this academic background, you would have been the odd duck in the organization, right? I mean, I you would have been, <laughs> what was that like? <laughs> you know, I made it pretty much a badge of honor. I mean, the, the deal that I struck with, with uh, Time Inc. about that first job obliged them to put me through the equivalent of a tenure review at five-year intervals where, you know, we'd convene a body of, you know, a couple of outsiders who would evaluate the work I'd done for, you know, conferences, for publications, for things of that sort, and make that a formal part of my job review. And that was just so completely weird to <laughs> me that it definitely set me apart from any others, but it, it actually built credibility because they, they understood that I wasn't there just to do the bidding of some constituent within the corporation or not. And I think this is really important for any researcher in any organization to the degree that you can, can report to the kind of the president's line of control rather than be under the thumb of marketing, under the thumb of product, you know, in the studio system, in media, you, you know, if, if you're working just for the sort of content side or you're working only for the, uh, the marketing side, you're under a lot of pressure to go along with what they're trying to argue for. And, you know, what you really want to do if, if you're a strong researcher is you, you, you want to try and go for whatever is, is, is actually the direction that the data are pointing you. And that isn't always so easy. And, and I have to say, you know, ultimately, when I left Time Inc. to go to work at Time Warner Corporate, as we were moving, you know, quickly into the digital era, had, you know, great opportunity to study how this was changing consumer behavior with media and how it would change the kinds of approaches to bringing media to, to market. But there's a, you know, there's a lot of contending factions and research really should be the way of representing the consumer in that. But it always can get very political and make it difficult to be heard you know, and have people take the, take the information to heart. And I, that wasn't always successful at that at, at Time Warner. And that was actually one of the reasons that I left uh, after uh, 18 years. But... Um, you know, that, that was always the, the attempt. So you truly cut your own path rather than kind of just drop in the, the, the groove, so to speak. You created your own career path in a way. Yeah. And it was built really on the, the idea that research needs to speak truth to power. You know, that your, 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 your job is to try to represent reality as best you can. I, I think it's the, the mission of, of science and to the degree that we represent science and scientific method in whatever our, our field of endeavor is, whether it's media research or uh, any other endeavor. I mean, you, 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 you need to try to get it right and you need, you know, the, to be open to revising <laughs> your point of view. If you get new data that comes in and it's, it, 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 it's, it would point you in a different direction. 
that's really the activity that we're engaged in. So you started out by asking about how weird it was to come in from a field like sociology. I still consider that that's what I do. It's always what I've done. It's just in a, in a, in a media research context. Sociology is a very porous field in some ways. It touches lots of other areas of the social sciences and, and applied research as well. So from my standpoint, I've always done applied sociology. So we should probably pause for a second, Scott, because what I'm realizing as we're talking, we're about to talk about the rest of your career in, in the magazine industry. And I've suddenly realized that a lot of the audience won't know what the magazine industry really was like. I mean, particularly as an industry, not, not just as a medium that you see kind of like at the supermarket checkout, but I mean, in its day, just how amazing and how powerful and and a lot of the insights that we have from what was the magazine industry in terms of where we're going, you know, the passion that people had. I mean, when we think of magazines again in their heyday, people had a passion for magazines that was greater even than the passion that they had for for most TV shows. You know, when you think about the, the context of advertising in magazines and the way ads worked and the high regard that people had for ads, not, not like what we think of today where we're thinking about getting rid of ads from our experience. Maybe you could tell us a little bit, describe for us what the magazine landscape as an industry was like at its, at its peak. Sure. Well, well, magazines were in some ways, you know, the, the first mass media. Uh, newspapers were always very local. Uh, and very important, you had multiple newspapers in each in each city. But you know, beginning really in the late 19th century, magazines became a key part of kind of a national a national medium. And so, national advertisers wanted to be in those, and they 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 really built around particular points of passion that people had. So there there would be homemaking magazines, there'd be news magazines, there would be sport magazines. Big visionaries like Henry Luce, who founded Time Magazine uh, and Life, wanted to create more of a kind of national dialogue around current events and and news and kind of facts and opinion, and but a somewhat more highbrow approach to reporting what was taking place in the world anywhere at that time augmented a lot by photography, of course. Photography was always very, very important to that magazine experience. But the titles for which Condé Nast became very famous, titles like Vogue, Gourmet, GQ, Vanity Fair, and, and of course, The New Yorker, all represented not just a media product, but a kind of a lifestyle that people would aspire to. It meant something that you were in the audience of one magazine versus another. It was a, a, a form of proclaiming your identity. And in the heyday of, of magazines, that was very, very true. And the editors of those magazines were tastemakers. So in, in the context of advertising, it's, it's quite interesting because the ads in each of these sort of vertically specific magazines uh, always felt like they belonged there. They were part of the benefit of the magazine. You know, like September Vogue is the classic case. I mean, it had the same amount of editorial pages every September, but a really successful September Vogue was like a phone book. It was very, very fat with ads, and the, those ads were part of the value. You know, uh, so so think about that in the context of how we think about advertising now. Advertising right now is mostly thought of as this 
at, at best an annoying interruption that, you know, to, you know, people worry about overdoing frequency in TV advertising, showing the same ad too many times, same thing in all forms of digital. It's a model that we inherited from TV that's highly interruptive. Uh, you're doing one thing and then the ad's coming in and interrupting you and you got to either like wait five seconds to be able to swat it away or you have, you know, it's that irritating model, kind of hostile model, very, very different in the context of magazines because they were part of the value proposition and, and part of the enjoyment of some of the most beautiful ads that you could kind of project yourself into. I really want to be on that beach. Oh, you know, I'd look so good in that dress, you know, so, so those those kinds of invitations to put yourself into the picture were kind of the how magazines work psychologically uh, and how magazine advertising works psychologically, really very, very different from that interruptive model, which is now kind of metastasized into privacy invading, tracking you from place to place. You know, you, you buy something in a store and half hour later, you're getting hit with an ad that's targeted to you because of that. It's very, you know, people talking about as like surveillance advertising. This is the unfortunate consequence of kind of moving too far away from that magazine advertising model, in my view, and treating audiences as just being the composite of these digital attributes that are gathered from your browsing activity. It's almost like as an industry, we were at a crossroads. There was this crossroads between going down a contextual path, you know, which was you know, what magazines were really best at and, and a targeting path. And we've, we've gone down the targeting path and we're probably at some point or maybe already reaching a point where we're realizing, hey, that context wasn't so bad. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's one of the ironies we're, we're having kind of contextual advertising coming back and, and, and people trying to find ways of, of, of folding that into to digital advertising. But it was always there in in magazines, and and the you know the sad part is that even though there was still consumer demand for printed magazines persisting, you know, <laughs> as late as 2010, from the data I can see that you know the, the the magazines started going under because of they were abandoned by the advertisers, and you know their revenue model depended heavily on that. So only those that could that could manage to charge subscribers a lot of money. So like you know. The New Yorker survives because people will pay $150 a year subscriptions for it. Same, and, you, and you see what's happened. You know, if you if you buy the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal, you see the, these publications survive because they charge a lot more money. So that tends to skew those magazines way up market. It's, in my view, probably not the best thing for democracy <laughs> to put such a high tariff on quality information and leave everybody else to whatever they can find on social media. I think we've lost a lot in permitting all advertising to go to this sort of highly uh, specific tracking model. You know, there's an interesting anecdote about what I'd said before about how the ads in magazines kind of belong there because they are contextually relevant. And we had one episode that was, that was quite amusing when I worked at uh, Condé Nast, where the head of corporate sales struck a big deal with McDonald's. And a McDonald's ad ran in all the Condé Nast titles, including the New Yorker, Vogue, GQ, Architectural Digest, all these very sort of high-end, glossy magazines. And we got complaints from consumers. <laughs> it, it offended their sensibilities to have a McDonald's ad. It wasn't, the, it was like, you know. That's amazing. Wrong with the product, but 
but it's like, what's that doing in my magazine? Uh, and, <laughs> you know, it, it was, it was a, a, a transgression against the kind of expected, like who gets invited into this room kind of <laughs> uh, sensibility that, that attaches around those magazines. So sorry, that was a little bit of a digression. Let's go back to your career. So you uh, were at Time Warner. You had moved into Time Warner Corporate, and you right. you were now building this new research unit there. And and then how did you? Of course, you would have great been doing... fun. <laughs> <laughs> what was most fun about it? The growth of digital media in the 1990s was quite profound. And Time Time Warner was trying to be kind of ahead of the curve. Some of those were misplaced efforts, like the full service network which was a precursor to video on demand. But it was, the technology wasn't quite ready yet. It, was, it wasn't scalable, but it was still fun to, to do work on it and try and understand how it started affecting consumer choice and how you'd, even simple things like, you know, I learned about usability testing through trying to help develop the, the first remote controls uh, for television sets that, that could accommodate kind of complex things that weren't just about changing the volume in the channel or, or trying to design IP telephony about five years before it was technically feasible to make that offer. You know, so like if you're, if you're designing this system, what's the value that the consumer will place on call waiting, <laughs> you know, or, but call waiting doesn't exist yet. It's just a concept, you know, uh, or, you know, being able to store vo voicemail. Uh, these these were things. These are things we, of course, think of as trivial right now, but they didn't exist, uh, and they were they were part of a kind of a challenge to to research to try and figure out well what's the incremental amount that it's worth should we put this feature in or not and how would you know that to the researcher the applied researcher that I was these were these were great and interesting problems but the the biggest problem and it really had to do with my decision to leave time warner really just had to do with the fundamental problem but as you expand the volume of choice you end up you know with the worldwide web's advent in 1994 you know you you could basically navigate through pretty slow baud rate you know dialogues but you could access websites all over the world and suddenly, you know, you just had this problem of managing an enormous amount of choice. And the, the management at Time Warner was pretty convinced that the, the model for that, for helping consumers manage that choice was through, is the metaphor of the shopping mall, you know, that you kind of aggregate these things and you have anchor stores and big brands that people would come to. And all of our research really, you know, concluded over and over again, that the mall wasn't the model, that, you know, that the choice was really important. And what you needed was effective search. The search engines then were pretty bad. They would not give you very relevant results. And, you know, the algorithms for identifying, you know, the, 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 the questions that you, that right now you would type into Google and get a good response on didn't exist then. Google didn't exist then. Uh, but as soon as Google did arrive on the scene and provided like the early example of, of highly relevant search, it blew everything else away, uh, at least in the research that we were doing. But that was a case where it, it just was impossible to convince, <laughs> convince the management of the company that that, that that was the case. So they persisted in what was, I thought, a strategically disastrous direction. And, and so for me, the, 
a merger with AOL was kind of like the last straw because AOL was was built around a similar kind of aggregation model. So it indicated to me that I just wasn't getting through and it was time to go, which proved to be financially very lucky for me because all my stock options that I'd accumulated from all those years of working at uh, Time Warner were, were suddenly exercisable and being prized a lot in the, the sort of big boom time around, you know, 2000 when all this happened. So it was a good time to... Uh, to make an exit, but it it also was a bit of a frustration because what I was trying to do professionally was to get Time Warner to go a different direction from the one that they ultimately took. You know, you were talking about the mall metaphor and the full service network, just for the benefit of the audience who, who may, may not have seen what that looked like. Um, it was such a beautiful experience. It was, I mean, even today with the benefit of hindsight, when you look back and think about what technology could do in that era, but you'd go like the, the way the interface worked, you would have this very media rich experience where you'd be going for a walk, as you say, in an outdoor mall, and you'd walk past the Disney store and suddenly the tile on the floor below you would light up and you would tell you were in front right. of the Disney store and you'd continue walking. I mean, a beautiful experience, but pretty impractical. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it wasn't scalable at all. <laughs> and it, it, it really didn't map to what people were finding the most exciting about the, the growth of digital at that point, which was this sort of unfettered choice. Yeah. So it's interesting, you know, when you don't know the future, you're, you're, you're trying to grapple with what it might look like, you know, so a, a mall kind of like makes sense, I guess, in one sense, but of course it didn't turn out to be the metaphor that worked. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> It is interesting, though, that, that, we, that we understand these things a lot through things like metaphors. I did, I guess that was sort of a meta lesson for me and all of that, that, that you know, you, you, if, if you wanted to dethrone the mall metaphor, you needed a different metaphor to help people understand it, you know. Right, right. So you made the transition, then you, you, you left and, and cashed out, so to speak, and went to uh, Condé Nast. How, how did that happen? And, and, and what was that like? What was that experience like for you? People said it was going to be a, a big culture clash. Condé Nast was a private company, very fancy company with iconic editors, iconic magazine brands. It was facing the same issues of the transition to digital. I had a great time there. It was, it was, it was very welcoming. And here I was able to take some of what I'd already learned from Time Warner and you know, insist that my line of reporting went through to the president of Condé Nast. The owner of Condé Nast, Cy Newhouse, was surprisingly interested in how everything worked, <laughs> including, say, my newsstand forecasting model. So, you know, one of the advantages of doing work in uh, magazines is that you um, at least, you know, prior to the advent of the iPhone, when all attention sort of went to these little screens, you know, people would fill their time at supermarket checkout, kind of browsing the magazines that were on display there. And you could observe that and you could time it and you could uh, understand something about how their eyes moved across the surface. And you could, these were all things you could, you could study directly, but you also had kind of a, an expected number of magazine copies that you could sell at newsstand every week. That would be from a statistical standpoint, kind of like your baseline. And then you could take measurements with alternative cover subjects or cover treatments and look for the deviations from that, that baseline that would be indicative of, of a strong sale or a weak sale. 
Um, wow. So what you're saying, Scott, is that you could, you know, imagine a cover that looked like like one thing and then imagine a, an alternative cover and then accurately forecast which which cover would would sell more crop, copy ultimately. Exactly. And and uh, so the reason that the Condé Nast wanted to hire me was because I'd done some sort of pioneering work of, along these lines at Time Inc. and at Time Warner. All of the work I did at, at, at Time Inc. and Time Warner was on the consumer side. It wasn't really the advertising side of the business. So it was how do you stimulate consumer demand? How do you get consumer acceptance of products? And, and it had been very focused on supporting editorial decision-making. And, and that, again, I think is partly where my sociological background, this sort of, you know, Harvard PhD uh, helped quite a lot because culturally I was closer to the editors than to the ad salespeople. You know, we, we, we would see each other at, you know, Carnegie Hall or at BAM or at something, you know, you, you'd bump into people in, you know, a cultural milieu in, in, in New York City. And I, I kind of was a more natural fit with a lot of the editors. And, and so that was, that was actually kind of a, a, an asset in an editorial, a creatively driven company like Condé Nast. So, you know, it, it, it was a fun challenge to kind of build the science piece to support those editors. So, you know, Anna Winter would create alternative Vogue's. You know, she, you know, or, or, uh, you know, in any of my editors there at uh, any of the magazines, the exception being the New Yorker, which, which um, had sort of a different relationship with them. But um, the, the ones that relied heavily on newsstand sales, the, we, we had a common <laughs> motivation. I wanted to perfect the forecasting model and they wanted to uh, sell more copies at newsstand. And so it became a, 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 a fun partnership and something that I, uh, feel quite proud of. Like I say, it was it was very much undone by the rapid expansion of the iPhone, which changed behavior in a, a significant way. And you know that became then a subject of study later on as to how to how to respond to that. But for quite a long time, that was that was a, a major focus. I also got to work on advertising related issues on how advertising works, and some so some of the things that I was talking about earlier with regard to the differences between the sort of invitational model of magazine advertising and the interruptive model of television advertising grew out of that advertising side of my uh, career at Condé Nast. Now, the, the cultures were very different though. Um, I remember once you telling me a story about how early you'd have to often go to work that sometimes you'd have meetings at <laughs> 6.30 in the morning. <laughs> Yeah, Maybe. well, Cy Newhouse did arrive early and they didn't like to leave him unsupervised for very long. So he'd show up at the office at like 4.30. So it wasn't that unusual to have 6.30 uh, meetings. And like I say, I, I would be out seeing a concert or something in the in the evening <laughs> or a play. And so uh, Condé Nast wasn't always great for uh, me getting enough sleep, but it was it was still uh, a fun place to work and kind of enjoyed enjoyed the experience. So Scott, you you didn't save magazines. <laughs> I, what, I certainly tried. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, what 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 happened there in the end? Well, uh, ultimately, with the growth of the smartphones and the growth of social media, and eventually, then you started having sort of social media stars and uh, social media influencers. So it it pulled some of the exclusivity of editorial power as a, a tastemaker 
as kingmakers. So, you know, some of that got leached out as uh, social media and uh, sort of social media influencers grew. And as I said, the advertising dollars were chasing that. I mean, you can sort of see, you know, the sort of massive movement of dollars to, to Facebook, to YouTube, to all, all of these, uh, you know, sort of other players and directly out of, out of magazine. And so eventually, and, and you know, for most magazine companies depended disproportionately on advertiser support. Uh, they, they, they weren't as expensive to consumers. And, you know, I think when I joined Condé Nast, 90% of the revenue came from advertising. One of the strategic goals there was to adjust that and make it, make that less true. But the 90% is a pretty hard place to start from, uh, you know, if you're, if you're trying to diversify your revenue stream and, and, and move toward more consumer support. So, yeah, I mean, ultimately there was enough financial pressure that everything started shaking out. And that was sort of the end of, the, of what we now described as the golden age of magazines. And uh, by, by that time, it was, it was pretty much time for me to uh, retire and, and step back. So uh, my timing was in, in that respect, pretty, pretty lucky. I had a good 14 years at, at Condé Nast. So it's a, a good long run there. So you retired and you, you thought, I don't know, you'd be gardening or something. And and then something happened and you came out of your retirement. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the something that happened was the position opening to lead the ARF. And I'd been involved with the ARF for, you know, pretty much since I started in the business and always viewed it as, as uh, an important organization for, for helping to improve the practice of uh, advertising and marketing and media research. And it's, it's sort of in part, it's a forum, a place where people can argue about different views and where you can do some work to try to sort out the wheat from the chaff and, and identify best practices and make the industry smarter. So to me, it was uh, an important opportunity. And uh, I, I think at the point that I took it on, it was, it was kind of in need of, 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 of refocusing on its mission, its original mission, which is to bring the, the discipline of science to the, to the practice of marketing and advertising. And I mean, science means something really specific to me. And I don't mean it's like guys in white lab coats. I mean, science means falsifiable propositions. It means a very empirical frame of mind. It means, you know, trying to establish with as much rigor as you can, what are the facts? I, I was like the, um, the saying from uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan that, you know, you're entitled to your own opinions, but you're not entitled to your own facts. So I think organizations like the ARF, which make the, the pursuit of science in the practice of advertising and, and marketing uh, their central mission, this is a good thing. This is something that we should champion and try and build upon. So, so for me, that was enough reason to kind of come out of my semi-retirement. It, it's funny you talk about science that way. It makes me feel like this could have been a a conversation in the 17th century. <laughs> very much, very much. I mean, you know, it's like the 17th century was the place where, where Western civilization basically embraced science. I mean, at the start of the 17th century, I think it was like Macbeth was written in, I think, 1603. And so there was all this magic, you know, there were like witches. It was widely believed at that point that a, a murderer would, would start bleeding at the eyes at the sight of, of, of the victim, or that there'd be some, there are all these sort of, you know, things that seem preposterous to us now, but you know, Giordano Bruno was burned at the stake in, in, in Rome in 1600 
for the heresy of persisting in claiming that the, the sun did not revolve around the earth. We now, of course, know that the earth revolves around the sun, but he went to the stake for that. And 50 years later, by, by 1650, that had all collapsed and the power of, of uh, the dogma of, of uh, traditional Catholic thought was broken by the Thirty Years' War, the, the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, religious tolerance. And from that point forward, you, you had the Enlightenment uh, beginning and uh, you, you had you know, the, the notion, particularly in England, which had this sort of empirical variant. Of, of enlightenment thought that you build <laughs> sort of a body of information by you know advancing hypotheses and then testing them using you know experiments and using the, the methods of science and every you know hypothesis has to be falsifiable you can't advance something you know as a, as a serious hypothesis without it being something that can be disproven and incrementally, you know, you will, you'll take advantage of all the diversity of human intelligence and, and human endeavor and make incremental progress in what you know and what you can do. And that's kind of what we live on to this day. You know, the things that we marvel at are the fruits of that kind of scientific advancement. And I think it's, it's super important. And it's even more important in an era where we've had, in some ways, an effort to kind of repeal the Enlightenment. Uh, leadership in the United States that demeans expertise, demeans science, that that you know tries to treat facts as relativistic, and they're not. And so, you know, that that kind of coincided with my taking on the reins of the ARF, and you know, so I get on my high horse a bit. But in our domain, in our area of study and and activity, I think it's just incredibly important that we honor those traditions of the Enlightenment, and that we stand up for the principles of science, and it's not anything goes. <laughs> some things are right, some things aren't, as best we can tell. So every leader comes into the ARF with a, a vision, you know, which they work to implement. And clearly this focus on upholding science is part of yours. But, you know, what else? What else is part of the vision that you 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 bring? Um, what are you looking to achieve with, uh, with the ARF? Well, I think part of it certainly is around, you know, sort of restoring the central position of the ARF's mission. I also see the ARF as being pretty unique almost uh, the only uh, association of its type that stretches across such diverse constituencies. I mean, it, it is by design sort of uh, about 25% marketers, 25% ad agencies. So those two are the buy side. And then you've got about 25% media companies, which now include the tech platforms, and about 25% research companies, which includes everyone from big guys like Nielsen to companies like Media Science or uh, you know, brand consultancies or ad tech companies that are offering services to the buy side. And it's very contested terrain, which is why you need a true north-like science. But managing that balance is, I think, part of uh, what's, what's unique and important about the ARF. I also wanted to restore uh, research as a core function of the ARF. It has historically conducted its own research, or I think it also can beneficially bring research wherever the ARF thinks it's good stuff, bring it to the attention of the membership. It doesn't have to invent all of it itself. So that was one of the main things that I wanted to 
address it to ARF. It, it didn't have a, a funding mechanism for research. It, 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 projects would happen because they were able to attract sponsors, and, and, but sponsors have a, usually a dog in the fight. They've got some point of view, and, and the whole point uh, is to have it be objective and neutral with regard to those sort of uh, dogs in fights. So we kind of instituted what we lovingly call the tie. That's It's actually a bit closer to like a 401k plan where a fraction of every company's dues to the ARF goes into the uh, reserve fund. And each year companies kind of allocate what percent they want to go to cross platform audience measurement or, or attribution, advertising effectiveness or advertising creative or consumer trend research or, you know, organizational research. And we've got these sort of broad buckets that we've learned from members are the things that they're most focused on. But we ask uh, people to kind of allocate their 100 points and, and guide that investment decision with regard to research. And then we've got a bunch of other mechanisms that we've revitalized that are our listening posts to find out what are the, the pain points and the places where we can uh, beneficially do work on uh, subjects uh, of interest to our members. So I've just tried to make it a lot more member focused, but where research is, is the product and some of that research we can do th directly through the council programs. Also kind of expanded our remit a bit by uh, bringing in two organizations, first SIM uh, in 2018, the Coalition for Innovative Media Measurement that does a lot of work on assessing innovations in media measurement. Very, very technical and very specific, but that, that became you know, a, a place where you could kind of go deeper in that important part of uh, ARF activity. And then uh, in 2021, uh, the Marketing Science Institute, which is this venerable organization to build closer uh, alignment between the work that's done at business schools, at leading business schools, and what, what marketers need. Uh, MSI has a, a great tradition. They've done, done pioneering work on brand management. Things like conjoint analysis got invented there. <laughs> you know, so they're like important methodological advances that you can credit to, to MSI. So it comes into the ARF as kind of our more marketing, uh, marketer-oriented sort of academic division. And uh, I mean, these are, these are both organizations that have missions aligned with the ARF's mission. And so that's the other thing that I have you know, tried to do is just figure out how do we figure out ways that the ARF can work on things that benefit the industry that are true to its mission, but that are kind of weakly correlated with our main revenue sources so that we, we kind of diversify Revenue. We've launched a certification program with NYU, have teaching uh, students, upskilling students, many of which work for ARF member companies already, but teaching them about the newer developments in, in digital marketing and, and, and newer research uh, techniques and, and offering a certification program. So any revenue that we make there is through tuition. Uh, that kind of stuff where, you know, it's uh, useful for improving the ARF as a nonprofit business, but also pushing on the sort of mission specific uh, goals. Wow, that's a lot, Scott. You've only you've only been in the role since 2018. Half of your time was during the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the pandemic was paradoxical in the in some ways. We we've done pretty well in the pandemic because there our members just needed they needed help a lot more, and we'd already moved. I mean, one of the other things that I really tried to do as quickly as possible was to reduce the ARF's dependence on big 
New York-based conferences as the main thing that it did. I, I think that was it was too uh, too big of an emphasis, and a lot of financial risk if you're making big guarantees to big midtown hotels. And it it encouraged again too much dependence on sponsorships, which can be corrupting too. So you know we'd already moved away from that toward more digital distribution of content, trying to get content easily to our members in Seattle and in Atlanta and in Los Angeles and you know <laughs> just every place else. And uh, the pandemic, of course, facilitated that because everybody changed behavior. They, they, they started relying a lot more upon Zoom and Teams and you know, digital connections to run their businesses at the same time that they needed objective information uh, to help them cope with the disruptions of, of the pandemic and other things taking place at that time. So the fact that we'd already started to shift our content distribution strategy in that direction just meant we could accelerate that. So we basically are doing twice the number of events that we were doing pre-pandemic and are able to you know, accelerate the amount of content that, that, uh, that we move, move along, but uh, do it far less expensively and on a distributed model that doesn't involve the expectation that people are going to fly to New York for a four-day conference. I mean, it's a lot, Scott, you know, doubling your participation at events, SIM, uh, MSI. Uh, I mean, there's just so much there, re- rebuilding your revenue model. I mean, that's a lot in a very short time period. What, what's on the horizon for you as you look forward to the future for the ARF? What do you see kind of like on the, on the farther horizon in terms of where you want to go? Well, I certainly want to see, I mean, we've launched this uh, certification program at NYU, and I, I think that's that's got great promise. Uh, we still kind of have to, you know, finish. We've got the first two electives launching in, I guess, week after next. We've already run the foundations course a few times. We've had about 80 students go through it uh, so far. And so I'm, I'm interested in kind of building that out. And I, I see this also because it's a, a hybrid course. It's, it, it involves one weekly meeting. It's all virtual, but it's one weekly meeting uh, where where students log in from wherever they are, and we've had them, you know, we've had them in China and in Mexico and Canada and Russia and and uh, various other places. So I'm very interested in this sort of educational initiative as both a way of kind of engaging some of our members who want to get more experience in teaching and in kind of upholding the the values of pedagogical approaches that were sort of pass on best practices information. But I think this is also an opportunity to give the ARF more international, more global presence. And, and so I'd like to, uh, uh, to see where we can go with that. We've also been uh, interested in, in trying to improve some of the kind of plumbing and infrastructure that, that supports a lot of uh, research. And in particular, we have an initiative, DASH, ARF DASH, which stands for Device and Account Sharing. You think of it as like a, a universe estimate study a syndicated universe estimate study on the relationship between our digital IDs. So that might be our, you know, our devices, our browsers, any of the other sort of digital signals and our persons and households (laughs) identities. Any of us have multiple digital IDs and they kind of map up to our, who we are as a person or what household we live in. And depending upon the scale level of aggregation of data, a lot of uh, error and noise can occur there. So this is a, 
a study we've done in partnership with the National Opinion Research Center at um, the University of Chicago to kind of create an industry standard resource audited by the MRC that allows companies to, instead of doing kind of a, a weak cut rate universe estimate study of their own to kind of buy into our million dollar universe estimate study and and take some of that noise and mess out of there that that might so this this helps to sort of build capacity i think for for measurement companies and again it, it's under the the heading of things that are worth doing that improve the industry uh, but that also uh, set up a a, a a different source of revenue uh, other than member dues and uh, and conferences and publications the other sort of main sources of revenue Wow, exciting stuff, Scott. So we always end our episode with a question, and that is, what advice would you have for the you know, new generation of researchers that are coming into the industry today? For, for me, it, it flows pretty directly from, from my own experience uh, in that you know, you're in this for the long haul, and your identity as a professional needs to be a top priority. So, you know, contribute to the industry, be present, give papers, <laughs> you know, share your intellect and your passion and be mindful of the fact that you're building your own professional brand by your, your role, your, your presence, your visibility in the profession. It's just super important that everybody think of themselves as being part of a profession that is yours to participate in for a period of time, and then you'll exit, you know, uh, but uh, in the same way that the ARF was started by a bunch of, you know, smart people in the 1930s that I never had the chance to meet. And if I have anything to do with it, it will be around long after I've left the scene. We're all custodians of these institutions and of these professions, make the most of it, but think of yourself in that context of being part of a broader profession. That would be my counsel. So Scott, thanks again. What a fascinating career. Thank you so much. And we're all excited to see where we go, where we continue going with the ARF going into the future. Thank you, Duane. It was great talking with you. Thanks again, Scott. And thank you, the audience, for joining us today. If you liked today's episode, make sure you follow or subscribe to the series if you haven't done so already, so you don't miss a single episode. And tell your friends and colleagues about us so they don't miss out either. And feel free to leave us a review or comment. We'd love to hear from you. And if you'd like, stick around for more information about media science at the end of the episode. Otherwise, I'm CEO Dr. Dwayne Varon thanking you for your company today and inviting you to our next exciting episode of Legends of Media Research. Media Science Plus is Media Science's own proprietary connected TV network where consumers access a special channel to test content for research purposes. In fact, Media Science Plus is fully addressable and is designed to emulate all leading OTT platforms. So you can test how your content performs across a range of OTT platforms. This means that when you want to test connected TV content, you can test it on actual TV sets in people's homes. And you don't have to settle with testing it on proxy platforms like desktop. And Media Science Plus offers additional services, including in-home dial testing and in-home neurometrics. So if you want to test on the world's most advanced in-home connected TV research platform, collaborate 
with Media Science, the leader in media and advertising innovation research.